Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 32. It's time to get in training as we take on Silas Craggs in Conan Doyle's boxing tale, The Croxley Master, from 1899. And here's Paul to introduce the story. Robert Montgomery is a struggling young doctor's assistant in a Yorkshire mining community in 1897. He needs £100 to complete his university medical training, but sees little short-term prospect of earning or saving such a sum. He is, however, also a sporting man, and a chance and violent encounter with a part-time pugilist raises the tantalising prospect of his entering a local fight with £100 prize money. But how is he to obtain a short leave of absence from his pious and upstanding employer, Dr Oldacre? And, this achieved, how will he then fare against his veteran opponent, Silas Craggs, better known as the Croxley Master, hard-fighting champion of the neighbouring ironworks? The Croxley Master was written in May 1899, around the time of Conan Doyle's 40th birthday, and there was a lot going on in his personal life as well as reaching this milestone. His brother Innes had recently joined the Royal Horse Artillery and had just been posted to India, while his youngest sister Dodo was married to the Reverend Charles Angel, not far from the Mason Gill estate in Yorkshire where his mother had retired. And Conan Doyle was increasingly involved in public campaigns, Uh, on everything from the first international peace conference at The Hague uh, to the celebrations of the millennium of the death of Alfred the Great. And uh, in his writing life, he was equally busy uh, and demonstrating himself capable of producing stories in a wide range of styles and on varied topics. The Strand spent most of 1898-1899 serialising his Round the Fire stories, an excellent collection of mystery tales that include classics like The Beetle Hunter and The Brown Hand. His play Halves, which was based on a story by James Payne, was first performed in spring 1899. And his domestic romance, a duet with an occasional chorus, uh, was published in March. Uh, To somewhat mixed reviews, mostly from uh, a single individual, Dr. William Robertson Nicholl, the editor of The Bookman, who uh, criticised the work several times under different pen names, much to Conan Doyle's annoyance. And Sherlock Holmes was once again in Conan Doyle's mind. This time it wasn't uh, a new story. It was uh, the play written by William Gillette. Um, Conan Doyle had granted the rights to Charles Froman, the uh, American theatre impresario, uh, the previous year. And Gillette had written a first draft for Froman, which unfortunately went up in flames in a hotel fire in San Francisco in November 1898. Spin on six months and Gillette set sail across the Atlantic and arrived at Portsmouth in mid-May 1899 where he was greeted by Conan Doyle and famously Gillette disembarked from the ship 
as Sherlock Holmes and walked up to Conan Doyle with a magnifying glass and deduced that his greeter was unquestionably an author. A few days after Gillette's visit, uh, Conan Doyle completed The Croxley Master, and uh, shortly after his 40th birthday, he wrote to his mother, I've done such a good prize-fighting story, 16,000 words, my very best active style, seen in Yorkshire, the miners versus the iron workers, shall get £800 out of the strand for it, and it will be so useful for my approaching book of short stories, it is a ripper. Um, and he, at that time, he called it the Croxley Champion. Uh, we're not actually sure what the book of short stories would be, but it was most likely round the fire stories, although that actually didn't happen until 1908. Now, being quite a long story, The Croxley Master was published in three parts in the Strand magazine in October, November and December 1899, with illustrations by Sidney Paget, in which uh, Robert Montgomery looks distinctly like Holmes on a few occasions. And it received uh, positive reviews in the newspapers, with many comparing it very favourably to Rodney Stone, Conan Doyle's Regency boxing novel, which he'd published uh, three years earlier. The Croxy Master then appeared in The Green Flag and Other Stories of War and Sport in 1900. Yes, it's, it's, it's particularly interesting there with The Green Flag that it, it's subtitled, you know, Stories of, 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 of War and Sport. Um, the, the, the time this story is written and published, there's a lot of um, kind of almost questioning of, 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 of self and national identity um, going on in, in Britain at this time. Uh, we're talking you know, post Oscar Wilde trial when, when, when Wilde and his cleverness uh, seemed to be you know, the, the apogee of, 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 of the cultural scene mm. uh, in the mid 1890s. And then with his, his downfall, there's this, this move towards masculinity and, and the almost kind of boorish masculinity over, over what is perceived as, as over clever effeminacy. Mm. Um, and, and, and you get this, this very, very, uh, clearly stated um, by Robert Montgomery in the story, uh, where when he's disagreeing about um, about boxing and and that sort of sport world with with his employer Dr. Oldacre, mm-hmm. uh, Montgomery says his conscience gave him no concern upon the subject. Endurance and courage are virtues, not vices, and brutality is at least better than effeminacy. Mm-hmm. It's a very strong quote that one, and mm-hmm. it it fits in very much with 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 the mood of the time um it's it's significant i think this story is actually set in 1897 which is the year of queen victoria's diamond jubilee which is regarded as the uh, the high watermark of victorian imperialism mm. um the year after that we're going to get the um the victory in in the sudan uh, of omdurman over the the the, the, the Mahdist hordes mm. um in september 1898 but as doyle is writing uh the croxley master we are about to enter the uh, the Boer War. Yes, um, a very a very controversial war, even at the time, and 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 Doyle himself was very much in favour um, of of the Boer War, which was seen uh, across the world and by many people in Britain as as imperialist bullying. Um, Britain throwing its imperial might against uh, a bunch of of Boer farmers in in South Africa, but th- this this is proved quite different in the practice uh, just as the Croxley master is being published in the strand the british army is suffering a series of, of desperate defeats 
mm. at the hands of the Boers um, in December 1899, which became known as Black Week, with a number of battles uh, in, involved in that. Um, and and again, this is this is this, the rethinking begins to enter this 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 doubt and and writers and cultural figures like Doyle of of that view of of you know we we must have this masculinity are doing their best to um to support the war and mm. and so this this is the kind of the, the 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 context within which this story is appearing and as you've pointed out mark getting cultural plaudits yes yeah and, and it's interesting you raise that quote from robert montgomery because conan doyle himself makes almost exactly the same statement in memories and adventures um, when he talks about boxing, he says, I have never concealed my opinion that the old prize ring was an excellent thing from a national point of view, exactly as glove fighting is now. Better that our sports should be a little too rough than that we should run a risk of effeminacy, which is, you know, almost paraphrasing what you what you have mm. there with Montgomery. And again, it's it's interesting in this context as well of, of this story, um, coming back to, to the, the Oscar Wilde trials, that the man who is the cause of Wilde's downfall is the Marquess of Queensbury. <laughs> yes. Who actually brought in the Queensbury rules in the 1860s. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and it's very clear here that Conan Doyle is drawing a direct connection between uh, sport, particularly boxing here, and um, moral character and empire. I mean, that, there was a great debate about um, physical health as well. And, and the physical state of the British army, the fear that actually um, troops were poorly equipped, poorly trained, poorly disciplined, you know, perhaps like moral courage was, was you know, occasionally uh, cited as being a, a, an argument as well. Mm. But Conan Doyle's here drawing a really direct connection between the power of boxing specifically and the moral health of the, uh, of the nation. In particular, he's making the point about sport being a unifying factor for the various classes within uh, society. He, he There's a fantastic sequence at the beginning of the second part of uh, The Croxley Master where he describes beautifully this unifying effect. So as the coal workers and the iron workers are descending on the match, he says, uh, uh, literature, art, science, all these things were beyond their horizon. But the race, the football match, the cricket, the fight, these were things which they could understand, which they could speculate upon in advance and comment upon afterwards. Sometimes brutal, sometimes grotesque, the love of sport is still one of the great agencies which makes for the happiness of our people. It lies very deeply in the springs of our nature, and when it has been educated out, a higher, more refined nature may be left, but it will not be of that robust British type which has left its mark so deeply on the world. So this idea that it is a sport-loving, um, proud British working-class types, combined with the um, more refined middle-class types that Montgomery represents, that have built this empire. It's, it's there are a few points of real interest in that quote as well. One, one about the, the 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 when it has been educated out, mm. and this is being written written by a man who's had a very very good education. Um, but he still he still loves this 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 mm. this sort of sport and and as we've just quoted he's willing to say you know better brutality than effeminacy so mm. it it doesn't get entirely educated out um, the the other thing as well in that quote is where he he uses the word our the happiness of our people yeah it lies very deeply in the springs of our nature he's very much identifying with 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 this yes. 
Yeah, he, 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 there were a couple of occasions where he drops out of the narrat- narrator's voice into his own mm. in this story. It's really quite marked, um, and that's probably the best best example of it, I think. The, the other thing is, as well, to coming back to uh, one of the points we are making earlier about the worry of the condition um, of, of, of British soldiers is, is following the, this, this string of defeats uh, in December uh, 1899, January 1900. I mean, January 1900 had one of the worst defeats uh, with the Battle of Schwiankop, where the British soldiers are literally just cut down by, yeah. by, by, by marksmen. Um, they have to replace these casualties. Yeah. And so they're getting volunteers, and, and, and the medical condition of these volunteers just isn't good enough. Mm. Um, and, and, and Conan Doyle will certainly have picked up on this as, as a doctor. And of course, he went out to the wall later on um, as a volunteer doctor himself, which we'll obviously cover in a, in a later podcast. Mm. But it, it's, um, it, it's very interesting in the context of, of, of this story and the beginning of the Boer War. Yeah. And when Conan Doyle comes back from the Boer War, he, he campaigns enormously for army reform. And um, and also proposes a whole series of health measures, including mm. you know compulsory vaccination is one of the things mm. that he promotes, or somewhat topically. But there, uh, you know, academics like Douglas Kerr, Catherine Wynne have pointed out that there is a there is a narrative emerging around bodily degeneration, um, which perhaps represents this anxiety of mm. you know impending imperial uh, decline. There's also another thing that happens at the same time, which is. Addressing the same problem, but in reverse, which is um, this uh, fascination with physical fitness and the idea of the idealized male body, um, and this is this plays out actually in the pages of the Strand directly through features about um, a strongman, a circus strongman called <laughs> Eugene Sandow, who uh, had been employed by Ziegfeld and shot to fame with a whole series of fitness regimes and books and. Um, uh, bodybuilding competitions, and Conan Doyle promoted Sandow's work very heavily in the uh, immediate post-Boer War era. Often with implicit, if not you know, actually sometimes explicit, statements about how physical improvement could lead to improvement of the empire's uh, fortunes. And you get these allusions back to antiquity within the Croxley Master as well. Robert Montgomery is described as being a like a Greek statue. Um, whereas Silas Craggs is a deformed Hercules, so you get this very strange mixture of sort of idolizing of the of the um, sort of fetishizing of the male body at the same time as these fears of um, bodily de- degeneration. <laughs> Angus Wilson described uh, this as the the eighteen nineties as the naughty nineties, <laughs> as a period in which the uh, quote old unregenerate manliness of the Regency resurfaced. Uh, you know, presumably as a reaction to uh, uh, to what was happening with with Wild and others, mm. and, and you've also got the, this interesting irony. Doyle and his his supporters would would find a bit disturbing if 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 they thought about it too deeply. Is is with all this fetishization of the male form, mm. there is inevitably, as as you'll you'll get a lot of this sort of literature, this, this almost unconscious homoeroticism. It can't help but creep in. Absolutely. But we might also want to be a bit circumspect about this argument that boxing literature reappears in reaction to um, a sense of imperial decline, because uh, there isn't a huge amount of evidence of a great resurgence of boxing literature in the UK, and there is quite a lot um, in uh, the US. Uh, and in fact, there was a, um, a notable work by John Boyle O'Reilly, an Irish newspaper man in Boston, 
who wrote a, a history of boxing called Ethics of Boxing and Manly Sport, which came out in 1888. And that was reflecting a general uh, growth and interest in, in uh, both the sport of boxing and in boxing literature uh, in the US uh, at around the same time that um, the Croxley Master and other stories are being written. Yeah, yeah, you've got uh, sporting heroes in the in the kind of American dime novels mm. at this, this time, and this would later also resurface in in the pulp magazines in in the interwar years, uh, where you, you would get specific sports and specific boxing um, pulp magazines, and and um, the, the 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 creator of Conan the Barbarian, Robert E. Howard, who was also like Dog, very interested in physical culture. Um, he wrote a, a series of, of, of boxing stories, which were, were later collected um, uh, as, as the Iron Man and other tales of the ring. Mm. Um, so the, uh, American readers are, are, are very interested in the sport of boxing. Um, and it's, it's of, of particular interest with the Croxley Master that in 1907, uh, McLaurin Phillips uh, brought out um, an edition of the Croxley Master as a book. Mm. Um, with 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 curious illustrations because the story is set in 1897, but all the illustrations are from the grand age of, of Regency boxing. Yes. Um, and then in 1925, the American uh, version of, of Tales of the Ring and Camp is actually retitled The Croxley Master and Other Tales of Ring and Camp, and it has this, this wonderful dust jacket. Uh, with with a, a, a red background and yes. two boxes silhouetted, yeah. Um, but just as the 1907 Croxley Master had the wrong period for the uh, with with the Regency illustrations, the uh, the Croxley Master of 1925, the silhouettes look like boxes of 1925, yes, rather than boxes of the 1890s. Yeah, it's funny you should mention about the pulp novels as well. I mean, it mm. g- gets me thinking about the fact that there are, you know, there there are quite a large number of writers who we probably class as being toxic masculinity yes. now, who, who, you know, Dashiell Hammett, Norman Mailer, uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, mm. all themselves, um, you know, interested in, in, in boxing. And uh, the only other person I could think of who actually engaged in boxing around the sort of 1890s is George Bernard Shaw, of all people, who <laughs> wrote uh, who wrote a novel, uh, Cashel Byron's Profession in 1882, which he later claimed was meant to, put people off boxing but um he seems to have quite enjoyed um boxing in the in, in the writing of it and also spoke to a number of um heavyweight boxers <laughs> interesting that he uses the name byron there because of yeah. course lord, lord byron was 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 well known for for his love of, of pugilism and he'd actually trained with with one of the great fighters of the time gentleman john jackson mm-hmm. the one thing that really does come through in the croxley master is conan Doyle's absolute adoration of the sport of boxing and um, it's not just that quote earlier, but his personal interest in the sport and the fact that he participated as well. Um, we know that uh, Conan Doyle's one of Conan Doyle's earliest recollections was having sort of running fights in the streets of Edinburgh, as uh, Owen Dudley Edwards has frequently referenced as being a sort of formative influence. But one of the first incidents he recollects is his time aboard the SS Hope as a surgeon, where he sparred with Jack Lamb, the steward, and this immediately earned him the respect of the crew. You know, when he was a doctor in South Sea, one of his earliest encounters was to intercede to stop a drunk beating his wife. And I think the, the chap came off uh, the worse for wear from that mm. encounter. Um, and there's also this sort of tantalizing hint in 
uh, A Life in Letters in the um, collection of uh, Conan Doyle's early correspondence that he might have threatened violence against Brian Charles Waller, mm. the Doyle family lodger who we mentioned and talked about in, in episode 17 on Uncle Jeremy's household. In Memories and Adventures, he also recollects another incident when he was, presumably when he was a GP in Southsea, he went to examine a man for his insurance. And uh, and they, over conversation, they discovered that they were both interested in boxing. And so the gentleman went to his cupboard and brought out a <laughs> pair of boxing gloves um, and Conator wrote, uh, we fought several very brisk rounds with no particular advantage either way, but the contest always stands out in my memory for its queer surroundings and the old English picture in which it was set. It was one of several curious by-battles in my career. I recollect another where another man and I, returning from a ball at five of a summer morning, went into his room and fought in our dress clothes several very vigorous rounds as a wind-up to the evening's exercise. <laughs> so clearly, clearly interested in boxing um, himself, and it's not just that experience that comes through in uh, the Croxley Master. The Croxley Master very clearly draws on his experience as an apprentice uh, during his undergraduate years. Mm-hmm. And of course, Conan Doyle was very short of money, and his father was not capable of supporting the family. And uh, it was for that reason that he took these assistantships. Uh, to partly pay his way, but also to uh, support his family. In Memories and Adventures, he wrote, uh, it was clearly very needful that I should help financially as quickly as possible, even if my help only took the humble form of providing for my own keep. Therefore, I endeavoured almost from the first to compress the classes for a year into a half a year, and so to have some months in which to earn a little money as a medical assistant who would dispense and do odd jobs for a doctor. Uh, and in April 1878, the first of these placements was uh, as a temporary assistant to Dr. Charles Sidney Richardson of Sheffield. Uh, Richardson was an Irishman by birth who had uh, done part of his training in Edinburgh, and so that was probably the connection. Um, and he had an inner city practice in the Spittle Hill area of um, Sheffield on Nelson Terrace. And um, There are sort of different versions as to what happened, but it was a very short-lived, I think it was only three weeks in in Mm. total, that Conan Doyle was there. In Memories and Ventures, he said, my first venture in the early summer of 78 was with a Dr. Richardson running a low-class practice in the poorer quarters of Sheffield. I did my best, and I dare say he was patient, but in the end of three weeks, we parted by mutual consent. Mm. Um, And actually, Conan Doyle came back to Sheffield in 1921, and he recalled... uh, It's not generally known that I once lived in Sheffield. When I was a medical student, 17 or 18 years of age, I advertised my willingness to learn a little about medicine, and a Dr. Richardson, who lived in Spittle Hill, was good enough to take me on. I had no salary, which was probably what I was worth, and it was just as well for the population of Sheffield that in a few weeks that I got the order of the boot. In private, though, there's probably a slightly different take on this, and uh, he wrote a letter to his mother shortly after this uh, brief tenure in Sheffield, and said, uh, those Sheffielders would rather be poisoned by a man with a beard than saved by a man without one. I believe since that the real reason of the Richardson rupture was that several of his patients said I looked too young. He said as much the morning I left. Uh, And I've always loved that part of that letter because I think herein lies the origins of the Conan Doyle moustache. (laughs) <laughs> because we we certainly know by the time he graduates with his graduation photograph, he's grown a moustache. 
and his moustache was always of 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 fine proportion. So <laughs> it, it is this 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 kind of thing. I I I I get the 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 sense myself that he he didn't like looking boyish. And oh, I love that. This is this is part of his reason for growing the moustache, as, as as well as yeah. We, his wanting to, you know, probably look military and 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 masculine and grown up, um, and that this is all all going on, and 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 you know, the, the moustache would become very very important for the image. Yeah, well, it's a, it's the logo of the ACD Society. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so after finishing in Sheffield and possibly growing his moustache, then I'm not sure. <laughs> he then moved to uh, a second apprenticeship, which was with. Dr. Henry Francis Elliot of Cliff House in uh, Royton of the Eleven Towns in, in Shropshire, which Conan Doyle once disparagingly described <laughs> as being not big enough to make one town, let alone eleven. Um, and and he and Elliot seem to have had a bit of a feisty relationship. There's something of the sort of Montgomery and Oldacre relationship in 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 this one. He describes quite a sad uh, existence as an apprentice living alone, uh, living separate from the family mm. and only occasionally going into the room to sort of dine with them, which, of course, is, is a scene in the in the Croxley Master as well. He, he describes how he had a, a disagreement with Elliot over capital punishment. Conan Doyle was in favour of abolition. Elliot wasn't. But also uh, there's an interesting moment where Conan Doyle uh, wanted to come home uh, to Edinburgh and asked to, was inclined to ask to borrow... Uh, a coach and horses, but sort of instinctively knew Elliot wouldn't allow it um, because he thought it was uh, unbecoming of an apprentice. Uh, and so uh, he didn't bother asking in the end. And all of that sort of has the feeling of the the wonderful moment in the Croxley Master where Montgomery has to ask for the Saturday off. Yeah. It was in one of these letters to, to his mother that Conan Doyle described the poor experience of being an apprentice. He said, I vow and declare that the medical assistant is the most ill-used, underpaid, hard-worked fellow in the world. He does, as a rule, the work of a footman for the wages of a cook, that is, the best of them do, and though not acknowledged as a gentleman or treated as one, he must keep up the appearance of one under pain of instant dismissal. Many men, you must remember, remain assistants all their lives. Good heavens, what a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, this whole business of keeping up your appearance as a gentleman is critically important to Oldacre, who objects both to Montgomery coming back from his uh, excursion, his day off with a black eye, um, but also uh, the fact that he he doesn't attend church. Yeah, this this I feel certainly reflects um, something of, of of Doyle's own experience. Uh, I mean, when when Montgomery's talking about Oldacre, he says almost resentfully. He had prospered exceedingly by the support of the local church interest. Hmm. And the rule of his life was never, by word or action, to run a risk of offending the sentiment which had made him. Yeah. It's, it's very, very pointed. Um, and I feel that this, this also is a reference to another of, of, of Conan Doyle's own youthful experiences. Um, when he graduated, uh, he, he had it made clear to him that, that if he used the connections of his his well-connected catholic relatives he would be able to to Mm. to find work as a doctor through that and and he he refused on several grounds one because 
he lost his Catholic faith at that point and, and felt it would be totally hypocritical for him to use Catholic connections um, to, to find himself work. But also that 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 kind of the strong will side of Doyle, the, the, the self-made man, the man I will make my own way in the world, mm-hmm. comes out very strongly in, in his, his own life. And, and this is very much the thinking of Montgomery as well. And Montgomery obviously looks down on Oldacre because he sees him as a yes man. Yeah, that's right. And I think also all this experience of being an apprentice comes up again in um, the Stark Monroe letters. And and in chapter five of Stark Monroe, the, the protagonist is placed with uh, Dr. Horton uh, of Merton on the Moors in Yorkshire. Um, he answers an advertisement uh, which reads, uh, qualified assistant, wanted at once in a large country and colliery practice, thorough knowledge of obstetrics and dispensing indispensable Ride and drive, seventy pounds a year. Apply, Doctor Horton, Merton on the Moors, Yorkshire, and uh, uh, this is very much a similar kind of setting to the one that we get in the Croxley Master. Um, in fact, there's a wonderful description at the beginning. It recounts the sort of scarred landscape that he he is passing through, and he muses on what impact this has on the the local populace. You know, what can life offer them? to make up for these mutilations of the face of nature. No woods, little grass spouting chimneys, slate-coloured streams, sloping mounds of coke and slag, topped by the great wheels and pumps of the mines, cinder-strewn paths, black as though stained by the weary miners who toil along them, lead through the tarnished fields to the rows of smoke-stained cottages. How can any young unmarried man accept such a lot while there's an empty hammock in the Navy or a berth in a merchant <laughs> forecastle, Again, he's making this connection back to uh, the imperial life, I suppose. Um, but it's in, in this chapter in Stark Monroe, he goes into great detail about the workings of, you know, the, the daily life of an apprentice. And it, it is almost exactly the same as the opening scene of the Croxley Master, where Montgomery is preparing the medicines for collection and incomes Ted Barton, demanding the medicine for his wife yeah and that this this expression of the scarred landscape is, is again mentioned in in the croxley master itself um when montgomery is on his way to um to the fight mm. the road led away from croxley between curving green hills gashed and polluted by the searches for coal and iron the whole country had been gutted and vast piles of refuse and mountains of slag suggested the mighty chambers which the labour of man had burrowed beneath. Mm. So again, the, the, this imagery is 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 called up again. Mm. And there's a further reflection of this years later um, in the Valley of Fear, um, mm. published in 1915, uh, where where the the description of the um, the train ride to the Vermissa Valley is seen through the windows. You get this 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 view through the growing gloom. There pulsed the red glow of the furnaces on the sides of the hills. Great heaps of slag and dumps of cinders loomed up on each side, with the high shafts of the collieries towering above them. Huddled groups of mean wooden houses, the windows of which were beginning to outline themselves in light, were scattered here and there along the line, and the frequent halting places were crowded with the swarthy inhabitants. The iron and coal valleys of the Vermissa district were no resorts for the leisured or the cultured. Everywhere there were stern signs of the crudest battle of life, the rude work to be done, and the rude strong workers who did it. So the, these landscapes had obviously made a, a, an impact, and, mm. and it's interesting that you know, the Valley of Fear is is set in America, but you've still got this 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 imaginary landscape. He's called up 
Yes. Uh, I've no doubt is, is, is also based on his own experiences in the uh, in the north and the Midlands of England. Yeah, you could um, just take the you could take the wooden houses out and replace them with with brick houses, and it would be the same landscape. Yeah, but what's also interesting in in this description in the Valley of Fear um, is that he seems to be referring back to old stories. Um, so as as, as the, the train's going along, it passes through Barton's Crossing, <laughs> and the, uh, the, the 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 part-time prize fighter in Croxley Master is called Barton. Uh, and then you get to passing through the purely agricultural county of Merton, which again Merton on the Moors in Stark Monroe letters. So it's interesting how the, these these works all all tie together. And, and Conan Doyle is is all the time obviously thinking of previous works and his own experiences. Yeah, and as well as the uh, the the references to the coal fields and the colliery landscape. Um, in Stark Monroe letters, you also get, of course, the instance of boxing because at one point. Uh, the, the Collingworth pulls out of the cupboard a pair of gloves and he and Stark Munro um, start to beat seven shades out of each other <laughs> as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and Conan Doyle had done an awful lot of research into uh, boxing and this really did inform not just the Croxley Master but also other um, works, uh, notably Rodney Stone, who mentioned at the introduction, which came out in 1896, and the research that he'd done into boxing is is quite important because it uh, those texts sort of cemented several themes which were then reflected in the Croxley Master and and, and other works. Um, if you read the preface to Rodney Stone, he's particularly influenced by a couple of books, including Henry Downs Miles' um, Pugilistica from 1880 and a much earlier work, Pierce Egan's Boxiana in 1812. Uh, to 29. Um, Both of those book titles should give you an immediate sense of how much they're drawing the connection between boxing and antiquity. Um, But uh, Catherine Wynne in particular has done some good work to sort of uh, show the the relationship between these works and um, the cementing of boxing as part of the lifeblood of the nation in uh, Egan's work and also another one, Dowling's Fistiana, back in 1840. uh, There's there's talks about... uh, the natural fighting force of the of the ancient Britons, which uh, takes us back to the time of Alfred the Great, who, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, was celebrating a thousand years of of, uh, of Alfred the Great's death. Um, but in addition to this idea of boxing being part of the lifeblood of the nation, there was also this idea that boxing was a great signifier of honourable behaviour, and uh, that's particularly important in the Croxley Master because, of course, Silas Craggs feigns an injury and almost fells Robert Montgomery to the ground by effect- effectively playing foul. Uh, but ultimately, Montgomery is, he learns the lesson and turns the tables on uh, crags at the end of the of the boxing match. Conan Doyle repeatedly draws this connection between boxing and, and honour and chivalry. And there's a great moment where Montgomery is in the carriage on the route to the, the fight. And uh, there's all, all the supporters are cheering him on the way. Good luck, sir. Good luck to thee, they shouted from the roadside. He felt that it was like some unromantic knight riding down to sordid lists, but there was something of chivalry in it all the same. He fought for others as well as for himself. He might fail from want of skill or strength, but deep in his sombre soul, he vowed that it should never be for want of heart. Um, and and later on, there's a reference to uh, boxing being the uh, the sport of humble heroes. 
Um, so this idea of sort of boxing as a signifier of honourable behaviour, this comes out of these same works by um, the likes of uh, uh, Egan and Miles. And the other thing that comes out of these works of boxing history is the idolising of the amateur sportsman. And Conan Doyle, of course, very much uh, brings this into the Croxley Master. There is a uh, a point about Silas Craggs being um, a professional sports person versus um, Montgomery, who is uh, a, a much more capable all-rounder. Um, and several times Conan Doyle makes reference to the all-rounder being the, the, the pinnacle. Probably the best example of the uh, the all-rounder in all of Conan Doyle's literature is, is Lord John Roxton. And when Malone, I think it is, meets him in uh, The Lost World, um, he describes Roxton's rooms and says, uh, amid these varied ornaments, there were scattered the trophies which brought back strongly to my recollection the fact that Lord John Roxton was one of the great all-round sportsmen and athletes of his day. A dark blue oar, crossed with a cherry pink one above his mantelpiece, spoke of the old Oxonian and Leander man, while the foils and boxing gloves above and below them were the tools of a man who had won supremacy with each. But probably the story that most epitomizes the the sort of messages that come out of boxing history is is Rodney Stone, where there is a very direct connection between boxing and uh, national character and national strength, and that Rodney Stone narrates the the whole piece from the mid nineteenth century, having had a very successful career uh, in the navy, which uh, included his attendance and uh, participation in Trafalgar. Yeah, and I mean one of the other points at which this this amateur v professional uh, status is, is is really made in the Croxley Master is, is that there's, there's one point where where Montgomery is told that uh, if he wins the fight and once he accepts the prize money he's a pro mm. Uh, mm. and he basically replies don't worry this is the only fight uh, that, that I'm going to take part in of this kind I'm essentially I'm only doing it for the prize money and then I'm retiring mm. straight away um and, and there's there's this 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 whole uh, the history of boxing as well which, which conan doyle to me seems a bit ambiguous about is is this this changeover and when you you talk about the mid 19th century and rodney stone looking back on mm. this is the time when when boxing is changing from from the prize fighter yeah and the the very brutal bare knuckle fighting of of the, the particularly the Regency era um, turns into in, in the 1860s as as mentioned before the Queensbury rules come in and and gloves are worn and and there's there's very much the, there's a lot of point being made of this yes. in the Crocs of the Master that this is this is a fight which is it's on the borderlines of legality but it is legal yes. There's a police inspector watching it, but um, he's not trying to stop it. Gloves are being worn. Queensbury rules are being observed. So it, the, this is a very different sort of fighting from that in Rodney Stone. But it, there is this sense that the you know the crowds are, are the same sort of people who would go to see a, a, a prize fight, and and the fact that that um, Montgomery is offered. A bare knuckle fight. He is at the end. By Crags at the end. Yeah, shows that, you know the 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 old the old ways are still going on. Yeah, there's much more. I think it's much more <clears throat> raw, isn't it? I mean, yeah. and, and even though you've got uh, um, a London referee who comes mm. who comes up, who who incidentally is called Stapleton. I mean, that's a <laughs> that's a name you're going to get reused in about a year's time. 
Um, and this, but Crossing Master is just one of of many works, and we'll we'll no doubt cover more of them in the in the podcast at, uh, at times. But he writes extensively about boxing. But it's really fascinating to think why does he write about boxing in this so much? Because he doesn't write of other sports in quite the same detail. No, I mean, it, it is interesting that the, for somebody who actually was um, a, a bit of a, a, an amateur all-rounder himself in, in his own way, um, you know, the first goalie of, of, of what would become Portsmouth Football Club, for instance, um, and obviously well-known for his, his, his love of cricket. Cricket comes across as his main game in, mm. in life. Um, but he only ever wrote one cricketing story, um, the story of Spadig's Dropper, which is... is written in 1928 so it's yeah. right at the end of his his career nearly right at the end of his life mm. um but but boxing you've got you've got boxing in in rodney stone the croxley master how the king held the brigadier the brigadier in england um the bully of brockers court which is probably the only mix of boxing and the ghost story in english literature the end of devil hawker and probably most famously the the, the solitary cyclist <laughs> where where holmes has his um his his fight in the pub with with the odious Mister Woodley, where Holmes um, takes something of a, of, a, of a beating, but uh, Woodley goes home in a cart, which again probably mm. reflects um, Conan Doyle's own childhood experience of his fighting with with Eddie Tullock in Edinburgh, where where look at the state of you, Arthur. Yeah, but you want to see the state of Eddie Tullock. Yeah. It's it's very much that sort of thing. And and, and, and like Conan Doyle, Holmes's uh, um, boxing. Um, Pedigree goes back to his undergraduate days. We know in the the Adventure of the Gloria Scott that uh, he uh, he says uh, bar fencing and boxing. I had, I had few athletic tastes. And by the time we get to a study in Scarlet, Watson is uh, able to write his famous list of Sherlock Holmes. His limits, which has at number eleven, is an expert single stick player, boxer, and swordsman. And then in the second Sherlock Holmes stories, The Sign of the Four, we've discovered that, of course, Holmes uh, knows McMurdo, who is uh, Thaddeus Sholto's general factotum. And uh, there's a wonderful moment where uh, McMurdo only only recognises Holmes as soon as he puts his fists up. Well, I, I was just wondering there, where you were talking about Watson's list of, of Holmes' limits, um, how, how he knows that Holmes, by that point, is, is an expert boxer. You just wonder, oh. are there two pairs of gloves knocking about in, in Baker Street, and, and have they had an impromptu boxing match? That's right. Have they come back from a, from, an, <laughs> from Simpsons on the Strand and <laughs> decided to take seven, seven shades out of each other? Oh, I like it. <laughs> Boxing obviously did appeal to this, this this almost gladiatorial sense, yeah. Um, and because it is this sport, which is a sport for it's in, it's individuals. It isn't it isn't team sport. You you can describe the movements more easily, yeah. Um, and and it, it is this 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 gladiatorial combat, which has got a natural dramatic edge to it, which which in the hands of a of a really quality writer like Doyle. He's even if you're not interested in boxing, he draws you in. Yeah, I think that um, final battle works well because it is sort of described as a battle of wits as much as a as a melee. Um, and it's interesting he draws parallels with naval warfare uh, in this as well. He says he says at one point uh, the master was determined to follow up his advantage and rushed at him, slogging furiously right and left. But Montgomery was too young and active to be caught. He was strong upon his legs once more, and his wits had all come back to him. It was a gallant sight, the line of battle ship 
trying to pour its overwhelming broadside into the frigate, and the frigate manoeuvring always so as to avoid it. And actually, right at the end, as if to to sort of underscore this, when um, the master is finally laid on the canvas by um, a fierce right punch from Montgomery, um, it says, uh, eight, nine, ten, said the timekeeper, and the roar of a thousand voices with a deafening clap like the broadside of a ship told that the master of Croxley was the master no more. So we're getting close to time now. So, Paul, what do you make of uh, the Croxley Master, having reread it again now for the first time in a long time? Yeah, it, it's it's a story that I'd kind of stayed away from because I'm not not a huge fan of boxing myself. <laughs> um, and going back to it, it, it is it is a, a very good story, well well worth reading. And it, it is like all these kind of stories. It's from a great writer, so it transcends. Yeah. The subject. This, this isn't, you know, just about a, a, a slogging boxing match. There's, there's there's far more going on there. And the actual boxing match, as we've said, with the writing is so good, you get swept up in it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's it's an interesting piece, partly because of when it was written, as as we've said with this 1899 thing, with with so much going on. It, it's it's a real sort of almost a totemic. Yeah. Piece for 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 the time because of the, this this sort of the Boer War surroundings and, and issues of of uh, imperialism and 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 masculinity and and also for, for for Conan Doyle himself where he was at uh, at this point he's he's writing this just as he's turning forty and it's it's very telling I think that 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 Montgomery who reflects the young Conan Doyle. Mm. The medical assistant, the young man, the the the, the, the man who's in the, the peak of physical condition, is is up against an opponent who is forty years old. He specified that Cyrus, Silas Craig yes. is forty years old, which is exactly the age Conan Doyle is turning. Is it Conan Doyle reflecting upon his own state, where 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 he is at physically, where he is at in terms of his career, yeah. because because you know Silas Craig's is is a man who's still a formidable figure within his field but is he on the way out or are his powers waning so i think all this kind of um background material can can be woven into a reading of it and it's yeah it's a fascinating story and and i would most certainly recommend it yeah i absolutely would recommend it as well i mean if purely from the 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 um the standpoint of um the storytelling i i mean it is it is quite an astonishing piece to read now because it feels incredibly modern and in fact it was adapted for television in 1967 by john hawksworth better known as the developer of the sherlock holmes series for granada um when he he wrote a um the most of the episodes of a a 13-part series adapting conan Doyle's non-sherlockian works for the bbc and the second episode was the croxley master and if you look at the script of that you can see that he changes almost nothing um, the, the 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 beats of the story are exactly the same. The dialogue, with the attention to dialect and accent, which is really pronounced in the story, is a great feature of Conan Doyle's writing in this story. Hawksworth lifts all of that. There are a couple of really great character pieces in the middle of the Croxley Master, which we haven't touched on in the podcast, but are really brought out by Hawksworth. The first is the Master's son, and there's a wonderful moment where Montgomery is given the secret of how to defeat the master when the master's son comes to the training room and tells him 
that the master is sort of fair fogged. I think the word is fair fogged in the left eye, slightly, you know, half blind in the left eye. And uh, the backer asks why he's, he's doing this. Is he doing it for love in the sense that actually this will make Montgomery's task easier and the fight will be over quicker. And, and the boy says no for hate, because at this point, the master is uh, is actually having an affair with another character. The second point in the story that we haven't co- covered, which is Anastasia, and Anastasia is the master's um, sparring partner, uh, but also his mistress. And she's a brilliant character. She's an absolutely brilliant character. She only has a few moments in the story, but Conan Doyle is not known for his strong female characters. And here you get this very real i think it feels incredibly real this this character um and in fact you know at the end montgomery is laid on the canvas himself having defeated the master um anastasia comes up to him and blacks his eye and it's that that <laughs> ends up in montgomery falling flat on the canvas so so much for uh boxing as the ultimate depiction of masculinity <laughs> um montgomery ends up uh being defeated by by anastasia but i think you know the story is so brilliantly told, is so wonderfully paced. The plotting is brilliant. The characterization is brilliant. This really does rank for me as one of Conan Doyle's best short stories. Um, it's sort of top five material for me, this one. And uh, it's been a great joy to, to revisit it again for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the end of this episode. If you'd like to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating or review or consider sponsoring us either at patreon.com forward slash doingsofdoyle or you can sponsor us via PayPal at the website doingsofdoyle.com. So, Paul, what have we got on the on the show next time? Next time is another one of our interview shows. And our guest this time will be Martin Edwards, uh, who is the renowned crime writer and has just published... Uh, the Life of Crime, an absolutely monumental study of um, crime and detective fiction. So we will be meeting up with him and discussing Conan Doyle and his role in crime and detective fiction and probably the wider sphere. Brilliant. And it'll be great to talk to Martin about uh, all things Conan Doyle and, and detective fiction. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. And which Sholto is it, more importantly? It's Bartholomew. It's Bartholomew. There you go. I was about to get Thaddeus. Which one's Thaddeus. Thaddeus. It's Thaddeus. Because Thaddeus. Thaddeus talks about, we must go and see Brother Bartholomew. That's right. Brother Bartholomew. <laughs> it's a good impression, that. <laughs> it was absolutely delicious, Martin. So I see. A straight left against a slogging ruffian. I merged, as you see. And the slogging ruffian? Mr. Woodley was taken home in a cart. <laughs>